The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. David! Hey. I heard there was another incident this morning. I, I wanted to make sure you were all right. It was a different thing. David, you should see the look on your face. Olivia, please, not now, okay? None. My father had that same look 15 years ago. The night he went off to try and kill an android. You don't kill androids. They're not real. That is not true. They're not alive. They're machines. Don't make the same mistake my dad did, David. Don't treat them like machines. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, January 20, 2011. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. And as happens occasionally, co-host Robert Vaughn is unable to join us today, but we eagerly anticipate his return the next time around. Since I have the show to myself today, I thought I'd tackle an issue that, despite its seemingly narrow focus, nevertheless strikes to the very heart of humanity itself and of our relationship with the universe, you know, of cold, hard reality, I guess. Bit of a light mix of tech, science, science fiction, and philosophy. And that theme is artificial intelligence. Is it real? Is it the real thing? Um, Personally, I don't think it is. Now, although I have predicted on this show that by the end of this century, the next most noted quantum leap in technology that we can see from today's vantage point is, I think, robotics. Robots that we might be more inclined to call androids, which are robots with so-called artificial intelligence. I think the best and most widely recognized representation of this kind of android is the character Data from the TV series Star Trek The Next Generation. Because of Data's presence on that show, Next Gen was able to deal with issues and philosophical arguments that would rarely, if ever, be discussed in most popular TV programming. We'll be listening to a bit of that a little later on. But regrettably, I think Star Trek The Next Generation never really resolved some of the most fundamental arguments, which tells me maybe that the writers didn't really have any clear answers or even any clear guesses, but at least they brought the subject up in in an entertaining and enlightening way. And as I looked into the subject of artificial intelligence in general, I was surprised to see um, how much the discussion resolved, revolved around, even in the scientific community, revolved around science fiction itself. And, uh, you know, the science fiction is not just there for the entertainment value. Uh, in my research, it was remarkable how artificial intelligence was given, the arguments of art on artificial intelligence, you know, was given equal weight to the opinions of scientists, technicians, and science fiction writers. And, um, you know, what, much of what we, quote, know, and quote, about the field of AI comes from this popular source. So I guess the question is, is there such a thing as artificial intelligence? Or is it just an illusion? Is it not real? Can we really build machines that think independently? Are they really thinking or just mimicking the process of thinking? Are they just fooling us? Does it matter? 
and how does it affect we, the living? So I guess I'm feeling a little bit artificially intelligent. How about you? Had a, had a funny incident last night about this. I was last evening. I was over at my mom's place, who's in her 80s. And uh, when she asked me what I was going to talk about on the show today, which is interesting because she really doesn't ever listen to the show herself, <laughs> I said, artificial intelligence. And there's a moment of silence, and my mom goes, Ha! There's no such thing. That'll take you about 30 seconds to say, what are you going to do for the rest of the hour? <laughs> so needless to say, I was a bit shocked to discover that my mother, you know, who I never knew had any, we never discussed this in my whole 60 years of life, and she arrived so quickly at what I believe to be essentially the right conclusion in a sense. And so I explained to her, I says, well, Mom, I can't just say it. I can't just assert it. I said, that's no proof. And she looks at me and she goes, well, what do you got to prove? How can you prove something that doesn't exist? The onus of proof is on the other side, she says. And then pointing to herself, she says, this is flesh and blood. A machine is not. It doesn't bleed. It's built by someone made of flesh and blood. And it could never be intelligent. And suddenly I felt a little humbled there because in a nutshell, she pretty much summarized my entire position on that subject for today's show. But no, not my entire argument or reasons for addressing this issue, in fact. And I know there's a lot of people that would disagree with me on a lot of what I'm going to say, including perhaps some of my closest compatriots. We'll find out about that on a future show, I'm sure. But one of the alarming trends I've been observing in the debate on this subject um, is that the scientific thinking behind theories of artificial intelligence are actually being applied to the humanities, in, in almost in reverse. They're applying it to human intelligence. You can see the results of these theories from everything from the science of artificial intelligence it, right into our public education system and, and governance itself. The pragmatism of today's politics is, is utterly robotic in a way, if you want to call it that way, mindless and mechanical, but very scientific which is why the unintended consequences of government actions invariably outweigh or obliterate the intended consequences. And, uh, you know, you could argue that uh, what we've got in Queen's Park today under the governance of McGinty is artificial intelligence at its best, in, in the true meaning of that term, as we'll see later on. A bold assertion? Well, I don't think so. But really, I don't believe there can be such a thing as artificial intelligence, other than an, an expression of some kind of uh, uh, thing that we, we can call artificial intelligence. We can't, we can't treat it as the real thing. In that sense, it's an oxymoronic term. And it can only be properly used as a description of the mimicking of intelligence, not intelligence itself. Now, there are people that believe differently, and we'll get into that. But I think saying artificial intelligence is a bit like saying uh, unreal, real. Uh, you know, I, I feel uncomfortable with a term like artificial instinct, artificial emotion, artificial love, artificial hate, artificial rationality, artificial intuition, artificial understanding. And, you know, I think they're all funny terms, and yet people in the various sciences do refer to these non-existence. And so... I found that all these terms in all the literature that I was preparing as I was preparing for the show today. And a complete evasion of the whole discussion of what real intelligence is. They almost evade it like the plague. And they say, well, we can't really prove that humans are intelligent because we haven't got a method of doing that, so we'll take it on convention. That's almost how they put it. But I don't think you can talk about artificial 
intelligence unless you discuss real intelligence, right? Because without the one, the other, it's kind of a meaningless reference. It's artificial something, right? And that something has to be there. So how do you define the real thing before you go around defining what's artificial? I mean, I've heard it argued that there are a lot of people who are not intelligent. I've heard people say that their pet dog or their pet cat or rat is intelligent. Well, one thing that I can tell you a dog, cat, or rat have in common that a machine cannot share with them is that they are all alive. They are part of life. And a machine is not and cannot be. In a way, you could argue that if it were alive, that is, and it wouldn't be a machine, nor artificial. But that's called a circular argument, and we don't really want to make too many circles here. So I'm looking at Wikipedia, and they say that the philosophy of artificial intelligence attempts to answer such questions as, and I quote here, can a machine act intelligently? Can it solve any problem that a person would solve by thinking? Can a machine have a mind, mental states, and consciousness in the same sense humans do? Can it feel? Are human intelligence and machine intelligence the same? Is the human brain essentially a computer? These three questions reflect the divergent interests of AI researchers, philosophers, and cognitive scientists, respectively. The answers to these questions depend on how one defines intelligence or consciousness and exactly which machines are under discussion. Important propositions in the philosophy of artificial intelligence include, and here they get into, let me see, one, two, three, four, five of the main ones. And the first one is, of course, Turing's polite convention. Basically, this says that if a machine acts as intelligently as a human being, then it is as intelligent as a human being. And to which I can only say, that's silly. No, a machine would never have invented itself. Do you think a machine would invent a machine? A human being invented the machine. Now, you could design a machine to build another machine, but it would just be a machine building a machine, uh, not thinking on its own. Then there's the Dartmouth proposal, which says, every aspect of learning or any other feature of intelligence can be so precisely described that a machine can be made to simulate it. Well, yeah, okay, I'll agree that a machine can simulate an action, and... Uh, but that's what it is. It's a simulation. And that's, so I guess I could say this statement is true, but so what? No matter how many aspects or features you accumulate through precise descriptions, you still don't have intelligence, do you? Is that, is that what intelligence is? I don't think so. Then there's Newell and Simon's physical symbol system hypothesis. Quote, a physical symbol system has the necessary and sufficient means of general intelligent action, end quote. Well, I tell you, this is the most confusing one to me, and I didn't get into this one in big time, but, you know, why would a physical symbol system, we, don't we already use symbols to think? I mean, numerical symbols in math, alphabetic symbols in words and language. How can a machine understand a symbol of any sort? The symbol itself would have to have a meaning reduced into smaller components. Uh, you know, a human would program it to behave in a certain way, but uh, I don't know how it could do it on its own. And then there's Searle's strong artificial intelligence hypothesis. Quote, the appropriately programmed computer with the right inputs and outputs would thereby have a mind in exactly the same sense that human beings have minds. End quote. And this is the one, you know, it's so ridiculous, my mother would laugh at it, and, and she did, in fact. <laughs> we'll take a look at the definition of 
what a mind is a little later on. And then there's Hobbes' mechanism. Quote, reason is nothing but reckoning, end quote. Oh, really? Looked up in my funk and wagnalls, reckoning, the act of counting or computation. Reason, in funk and wagnalls, is a motive, a cause for an action, a belief, a thought, etc. The faculty of thinking logically, to analyze without meaning with the word out, as in, you reason something out. And of course, Ayn Rand describes reason as the faculty that identifies and integrates the material provided by man's senses. Reason integrates man's perceptions by forming abstractions and conceptions, thus raising man's knowledge from the perceptual level to the conceptual level, which he alone can reach. The method which reason employs in this process is logic. And logic is the art of non-contradictory identification. Reason is man's only way of grasping reality and of acquiring knowledge. Reason is a faculty that man has to exercise by choice. Thinking is not an automatic function. In any hour and issue of his life, man is free to think and evade that effort. Man's mind is the basic means of survival, his only means of gaining knowledge. So, you know, I compare that those two definitions of reason to counting. Mm, yeah, that's what counting is. And yet, the people in the field are just letting these definitions go. And they don't understand that without the proper definitions, their whole field of science can't, can't accelerate, it can't move on. You have to be using the proper words. Can you imagine if the... Well, I'll, get into, <laughs> I'll get into some of that later. And then we get to the issue of intelligence itself. And uh, this is, of course, the famous Turing test. Alan Turing, in a famous and seminal 1950 paper, and I'm reading from Wikipedia here, quote, reduced the problem of defining intelligence to a simple question about conversation. He suggests that if a machine can answer any question put to it using the same words that an ordinary person would, then we could call that machine intelligent. A modern version of his experimental design would use an online chat room where one of the participants is a real person and one of the participants is a computer program. The program passes the test if no one can tell which of the two participants is human. Turing notes that no one, except philosophers, ever asked the question, can people think? Interesting. He writes, quote, instead of arguing continually over this point, it's usual to have a polite conven convention that everyone thinks. And Turing's test extends to this polite con extends this polite convention to machines. Quote, if a machine acts as intelligently as a human being, then it is as intelligent. Well, I disagree with that. I think it's, it's just a, it's a mimic. It's not really as intelligent, even though it can be programmed very sophisticatedly. And then, of course, you know, human intelligence versus intelligence in general. This is an amazing heading because what other kind of intelligence is there but human intelligence? Like there's some other kind of intelligence floating out there. And so they say that the problem with the Turing test is that it's, it deals with human beings. It's anthropomorphic. Oh, how, how dare you be human when the whole quality of which you are speaking is a human quality? How can it not be? It has to be. So, you know... And then they say definitions like this try to capture the essence of intelligence. Well, we'll take a look at the uh, working definition of this a little bit later. But we're going to take our first break right, right now. And in this following excerpt from Star Trek, The Next Generation, this is an episode from, uh, it was entitled The Measure of a Man, probably one of the better known episodes. And I have to tell you, I've really tightly edited 
the courtroom scene to its real essentials concerning our subject today. It was a lot longer than this, so if it sounds a little different than what you were used to hearing, don't be surprised at that. But what it's about, the hearing concerns the legal status of Data, who of course is an android, if you're not familiar with that, on board the Starship Enterprise. And the issue at, at hand is, is Data property? Is he an object of ownership? Or is Data an individual with individual rights? So on this side of the bumper, we're going to give two minutes to the prosecution. On the other side of the bumper, two minutes for the defense and two minutes for the judgment. So here comes the judge, and then I'll be back. This hearing, convened on Stardate 42527.4, is to determine the legal status of the android known as Data. The Office of Judge Advocate General has rendered a finding of property the defense has challenged. Commander Riker? Your Honor, there is only one issue and one relevant piece of evidence. I call Lieutenant Commander Data. Commander, what are you? An android. Which is? Webster's 24th Century Dictionary, 5th edition, defines an android as an automaton made to resemble a human being. An automaton? Made by whom? Sir? Who built you, Commander? Dr. Noonien Soong. And he was? The foremost authority on cybernetics. More basic than that, what was he? Human? Thank you. Commander, what is the capacity of your memory and how fast can you access information? I have an ultimate storage capacity of 800 quadrillion bits. My total linear computational speed has been rated at 60 trillion operations per second. I request to be allowed to remove the commander's hand for your inspection. Proceed, commander. I'm sorry. The commander is a physical representation of a dream, an idea conceived of by the mind of a man. Its purpose, to serve human needs and interests. It's a collection of neural nets and heuristic algorithms. Its responses dictated by an elaborate software written by a man. Its hardware built by a man. And now, and now a man will shut it off. Pinocchio is broken. Its strings have been cut. Hold to the stand, Commander Bruce Maddox, as a hostile witness. Verify. Maddox, Bruce, Commander. Current assignment, Associate Chair of Robotics, Daystrom Technological Institute. Major papers... Yes, yes, yes. Suffice it to say he's an expert. Commander, is your contention that Lieutenant Commander Data is not a sentient being and therefore not entitled to all the rights reserved for all life forms within this Federation? Data is not sentient, no. Commander, would you enlighten us? What is required for sentience? Intelligence, self-awareness, consciousness. Prove to the court that I am sentient. This is absurd. We all know you're sentient. So I am sentient, but Commander Data is not. That's right. Uh -huh. 
Christ, Ancient. Well, you are self-aware. Ah, that's the second of your criteria. Let's deal with the first, intelligence. Is Commander Data intelligent? Yes. It has the ability to learn and understand and to cope with new situations. Like this hearing. Yes. What about self-awareness? What does that mean? Why, why am I self-aware? Because you are conscious of your existence and actions. You are aware of yourself and your own ego. Commander Data, what are you doing now? I'm taking part in a legal hearing to determine my rights and status. Am I a person or property? And what's at stake? My right to choose. Perhaps my very life. My rights. My status, my right to choose. My life. Oh, it seems reasonably self-aware to me, Commander. Your Honor, the courtroom is a crucible. In it we burn away irrelevances until we are left with a pure product, the truth, for all time. Now, sooner or later, this man, or others like him, will succeed in replicating Commander Data. Now, the decision you reach here today will determine how we will regard this creation of our genius. It will reveal the kind of a people we are, what he is destined to be. It will reach far beyond this courtroom and this one android. It could significantly redefine the boundaries of personal liberty and freedom, expanding them for some, savagely curtailing them for others. Are you prepared to condemn him and all who come after him to servitude and slavery? Your Honor, Starfleet was founded to seek out new life. Well, there it sits. You wanted a chance to make law. Well, here it is. Make it a good one. It sits there looking at me, and I don't know what it is. This case has dealt with metaphysics, with questions best left to saints and philosophers. I'm neither competent nor qualified to answer those. I've got to make a ruling to try to speak to the future. Is Data a machine? Yes. Is he the property of Starfleet? No. We've all been dancing around the basic issue. Does Data have a soul? I don't know that he has. I don't know that I have. But I have got to give him the freedom to explore that question himself. It is the ruling of this court that Lieutenant Commander Data has the freedom to choose. And no, you're, you haven't accidentally tuned into the Space Channel. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW, where we're discussing the subject of artificial intelligence. And of course, 519-661-3600 is a number you can always call if you want to join in on the conversation. That was a a spectacular scene, actually, in the sense of the case that was being argued, and they were going all over the place, arrived at the right conclusion. Unfortunately, Picard played the race card in his defense, arguing that an army of datas could be subject to slavery. And it cut a bit of that out of the clip. But that's a non-concept to a mechanical device, but a very real threat to a living being. Data's rights should not have been dependent on any consideration of multiple data. He should have had his rights either have them or not. Now, 
I support the judge's conclusion in this case, though not her reasoning, which she herself very modestly did not claim to have any authority to speak to. But in reaching the conclusion that data has freedom of choice, she also concluded that data was a life form, not merely artificial intelligence. And, you know, if you watch the show, it's observably obvious by his actions since the very beginning of the series that Data was able to exercise choices. But for you and I here in the real world, let's keep something in mind, and remember that phrase, keep in mind, that Data is a fictional character and is a literary device, not a mechanical device. And, he, and as such a device, he has been created and designed to illum illuminate the nature of humanity, not of machines. And I have yet to, to see or hear of any development in the field of artificial intelligence that has led me to believe that a machine, quote-unquote, like data, could ever be built. In fact, the current debate I'm witnessing points me strongly in the opposite direction. Sophisticated simulations? Absolutely, yes. Real intelligence? No. Although some people are saying, well, what's the difference, you know? Now, don't get me wrong, I've, I have no objection to using the term artificial intelligence as a social convention, referring to very complex computer and mechanical devices. But if you think of it literally, I think that's very unreal. Now, I'm always open to some new development or understanding that could make me reconsider my prejudice. But so far, the more computer technicians and scientists advance on this subject, I'm discovering a lot of them are coming to the same conclusions. And I've seen admissions of this in the literature. Some of the key definitions we should start looking at before we continue with this subject. And it's hard to get the right definitions that are relevant all the time. I, I go straight to see what the Ayn Rand lexicon says because it is in a field of philosophy and they put a lot of work into their definitions. And in there I found the definition of consciousness. Consciousness is the faculty of awareness, the faculty of perceiving that which exists. Existence is identity. Consciousness is identification. So you're conscious if you can look at something and say, that's a chair, that's a table, that's a cat, that's a dog, that's a person, that's a sky, that's a star. It takes consciousness to be, able to be able to do that. Different from intelligence. Intelligence is the ability to deal with a broad range of abstractions. It has to be acquired by one's own effort and automated by his own mind. Intelligence is the ability to grasp the facts of reality and to deal with them long-range, conceptually. Intelligence is not an exclusive monopoly of genius. It is an attribute of all men, and the differences are only a matter of degree. Interesting. I mean, you, could you really apply that to a, a computer? Do computers put out their own effort to work hard? Can you, does the word effort mean anything to a computer? <laughs> or any kind of machine. And then, of course, there's the definition of the word knowledge. Knowledge is a mental grasp of a fact or facts of reality, reached either by perceptual observation or by a process of reason based on perceptual observation. Therefore, you know, what that would mean from that definition, you can see that anything supernatural cannot be regarded as knowledge, ever. 
One could not, for example, acquire knowledge, quote-unquote, about leprechauns or deities or an afterlife, since these things are not known facts of reality, cannot be perceptually observed, and not, are not arrived at by a process of reason based on observations of reality. Even those who believe in such things will tell you this themselves. They explain that faith is a means by which they have arrived at a given belief. And there's a lot of that going on in this argument of artificial intelligence as well. And then, of course, there are the key motivators, pain and pleasure. And in this definition, Ayn Rand says, just as sensations are the first step of the development of a human consciousness in the realm of cognition, so they are a first step in the, in the, in the you know, realm of evaluation. Humans have no choice about the standard that determines what will make them experience the physical sensation of pleasure or pain. And what is that standard? one's own life. So, you know, just as Data claimed that he was alive, not intelligent. He didn't say, hey, I'm intelligent. No, he said, I'm alive. I have my life. Once having done so, his own life became the standard of his values, which was the very thing that brought him into conflict with the Federation at the time. And then there's the definition of understanding. To understand means to focus on the content of a given subject as against the sensory visual or auditory, form in which it is communicated, to isolate its essentials, to establish its relationship to the previously known, to integrate that with the appropriate categories of other subjects. Integration is the essential part of understanding. So you can see how far away machines still are from any of these realizations. Interesting question came up in... Uh, in Wikipedia, they ask, can a machine be benevolent or hostile? And they pointed out that uh, in 2009, academics and technical experts attended a conference to discuss the potential impact of robots and computers on the, you know, if there, this hypothetical possibility that they could become self-sufficient and make their own decisions. And they discussed the possibility and extent to which computers and robots might be able to acquire any level of autonomy and to what degree they could use such abilities to possibly pose a threat or a hazard. And they, they noted that some machines have acquired various forms of semi-independent autonomy. And, you know, being able to find power sources on their own, being able to independently choose targets to attack with weapons. Interesting, because... Um, the very concern of what might happen is exactly what happened in the next clip we're going here as we go to the break at the bottom. Uh, what would happen if robots were given autonomous function, you know? And that was done on an early Star Trek. Remember the one with M5, um, the computer that would replace Captain Kirk himself. I just can't picture M5 as my hero image. But here we go, and we'll be back after this. Have you heard of the M5 Multitronic Unit? That's, uh... Dr. Richard Daystrom's device, isn't it? Tell me about that. The most ambitious computer complex ever created. Its purpose is to correlate all computer activity aboard a starship to provide the ultimate in vessel operation and control. How do you know so much about it, Commander? I hold an A7 computer expert classification, Commodore. I'm well acquainted with Dr. Daystrom's theories and discoveries. The basic design of all our ship's computers are Dr. Daystrom's. What has all this got to do with the Enterprise, Commodore? You've been chosen to test the M5, Jim. There'll be a series of routine research and contact problems for the M5 to solve, plus navigational maneuvers and the war games problem. 
But if the M5 works under actual conditions as well as it has under simulated tests, it will mean a revolution in space technology as great as warp drive. When your crew has been removed, the ship's engineering section will be modified to contain the computer. Why remove my crew? They're not needed. How much security does this gadget require? None. Dr. Daystrom will see to the installation himself, and he'll supervise the tests. When he's ready, you'll receive your orders and proceed on the mission with a crew of 20. Twenty? I can't run a starship with 20 crew. The M5 can. And what am I supposed to do? You've got a great job, Jim. All you have to do is sit back and let the machine do the work. regarding beta-class androids changed because of people like me. You're kidding yourself if you think it's just a select few. Whether you like it or not, androids have a certain type of consciousness. It's not like ours, but they are more than just machines. And yes, they are more than just machines. Like Commander Data, they are literary devices being used to illustrate the real fact that people are more than just machines. <laughs> Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW. I'm Bob Metz, and I'll be here with you until the top of the hour. In the overarching debate about artificial intelligence, there seem to be two views that argue one false proposition. While the one side argues that artificial intelligence intelligence elevates machines to some kind of human standard, the other argues that people are just machines and behave just as deterministically as any mechanical process, which includes electrical, chemical, neurological, etc. processes. Funny, I was talking to Robert Vaughn about that last night, and we realized that that whole issue of determinism and free will is, is going to be a show in and of itself, and, and we've got that one on the drawing boards right now. But getting back to the issues of definitions and where they lead us, how they get us into trouble on this. <clears throat> this is, again, from Wikipedia under the heading Consciousness, Minds, Mental States, and Meaning. And where they say that the words mind and consciousness are used by different communities in different ways. Well, that stopped me right away when I read that. I, you know... You can't do that. <laughs> You've got to stop already and get back and make up which way you're going to use those words. Imagine if that read, the numbers 7 and 4 are used by different communities in different ways. So in one community, 7 means 3. In another community, 7 means 6. <laughs> How long do you think that the science of mathematics would survive? Not very long, would it? That's epistemology. That's the power of definition. The reason science or the reason mathematics has evolved so much further 
than so many of the other sciences is precisely because of that precision in the language in which that discipline exists. And so too it is in the field of language and epistemology, of the English language. You can't be using words to mean different things in certain equations, and that has to be particularly true if you're looking at anything as complex as something called artificial intelligence. And they report, you know, to some New Age thinkers, for example, use the word consciousness to describe something similar to Bergson's Elan Vital, an invisible energetic fluid that permeates life and especially the mind. Science fiction writers use the word to describe some essential property that makes us human. A machine or alien that is conscious, conscious would be presented as a fully human character. Sound familiar? With intelligence, desires, will, insight, pride, and so on. Science fiction writers use the word sentience, self-awareness. And for others, the words mind or consciousness are used as a kind of secular synonym for the soul. For philosophers, neuroscientists, and cognitive scientists, the words are used in a way that's more precise and more mundane. They refer to the familiar everyday experience of having a thought in your head, like a perception, a dream, an intention, a plan, and the way we know something or mean something or understand something. It's not hard to give a common-sense definition of consciousness, observes philosopher John Searle. What is mysterious and fascinating is not so much what it is, but how it is. How does a lump of fatty tissue and electricity give rise to this familiar experience of perceiving, meaning, or thinking? Even that question begs a question. How does a lumpy fat of tissue, excuse me, it's not a lumpy fat of tissue, a, a lump of fatty tissue, they're referring to the brain here, of course, or maybe even your body, and electricity, so I can just cut off a piece of fat off of my steak and run some electricity to it, and then it will give rise to an experience of thinking? I don't think so. It doesn't give rise. You can put electricity through a lump of fatty tissue. It will not give rise to any familiar experience, regardless of what they say here. You know, and then it writes, philosophers call this the hard problem of consciousness. It is the latest version of a classic problem in the philosophy of mind called the mind-body problem, end quote. Well, that's not a problem unless you want to believe that the mind and body can exist separately. Then it's a problem. The problem being that you're no longer connected to reality. And that's a big issue, the mind-body problem. So... Let's go on and look at the, here is the, actually I couldn't find a definition of mind in the Ayn Rand lexicon, so I went straight to the dictionary, and it basically said everything I needed to see. And here is a definition from Funk and Wagnalls of the mind. One, the aggregate processes originating in or associated with the brain involving conscious and subconscious thought, interpretation of perceptions, insight, imagination, etc. And two, memory. I would say those two things go together to comprise what the mind is. Now, there are those, you know, run into them who disparage the use of the word mind, suggesting that it's not an appropriate word, you know, to describe any physical processes in the brain, and that the mind as such cannot be scientifically analyzed or measured. And they are correct in concluding that the mind is irrelevant in any scientific analysis of the brain or of the body. However, to conclude from this that the mind as such does not exist, I think is demonstrably false, and that's the holy grail that none of the so-called scientific community can ever really address. 
To study the mind, one must utilize the science of philosophy, not of chemistry, not of physics, not medicine, not biology, not electronics, etc., etc., all of which are part of the mind. In fact, I would go so far as to argue that there are human beings who can be described as mindless, though not brainless or bodiless. To have a mind, one must choose to do so. One must choose to think, which is an act of focusing. One must be able to choose. To be able to choose, one must have a free will. And mechanically minded, or should I say mechanically restricted thinkers, will argue that there's no such thing as free will either. It's all very consistent. All action and processes in the universe are deterministic, they argue, as if this has any relevance to the problem they're trying to solve. And this is consistent with the error made in rejecting the concept of mind out of hand. Now, I'm not trying to invent anything new here. I'm not reinventing anything. I'm not taking this out of context. Uh, consider, it's really interesting to note how the word mind is, is even used in common speech. Keep in mind what I'm saying. By using the term keep in mind, according to Funk and Wagnalls, I'm asking you to, quote, focus your thoughts or your attention on, end quote, what I'm saying, or to, quote, remember, end quote, something in conjunction with the subject of that focus. To have a mind means to be thinking about. To make up one's mind means to decide, to be determined. Now, there's that, there's that term again. Mind your step means be careful, pay attention, focus. In other words, have a mind, you know, behave in a certain way. Thought without action is of itself irrelevant and meaningless. When we say a person is behaving mindlessly, it means he's chosen not to think about or focus on his or her actions. Boy, that was a mindless act. <laughs> Could be said about a car accident, an emotional violent outburst, virtually any action that was irrational, but, you know, unintended or unexpected consequences like accidents can also arise from mindful action, especially when the knowledge upon which that mind is operating is false or incorrect. Error is not evidence of a lack of intelligence, necessarily. But when error occurs, could an artificial intelligence correctly identify that A, the error has occurred, B, the reason for the error, C, how to correct that error, you know, you can see the issue. And what would motivate an artificial intelligence to do so? What if someone were to lie to an artificial intelligence? Would it have some way of knowing what information it received is valid and what's not? How? To what end? Why would it bother? Remember Y2K? <laughs> Many very, quote, end quote, intelligent people I knew who I knew personally were very convinced that machines would behave unpredictably or shut themselves off, simply because the number 99 in the date would turn over to 00 in the year 2000, and we only had two digits for the dates back then instead of four. People in the, in the computer programming field were saying such things. You know, I, I talked to such people, and they were convinced that something bad was going to happen. And what caused this belief? None of them might publicly admit to this, but I think it's because they actually believe that these machines could think in some strange way. They'd always say things to me like, you know, when the 99 turns to 00, how will the whatever, the plane, the machine, whatever machine we were talking about, whatever mechanical device, how will that thing know what to do? End quote. 
Meanwhile, I'm thinking to myself, you know, how does a machine even know the difference between a 9-9 and a 0-0? Why are they worried about this? Were they panicking when it was going from 2-2 to 2-3? What's the difference? Yet everybody thought it was a big thing because of the millennium being changed. You know, unless there's a specific program already pre-written initiating a set of instructions to do anything when the number 00 appears, nothing unusual would happen. Why would it? Why should it? Yet I would never cease to be baffled by highly intelligent people caught in this metaphysical and epistemological trap. Planes were going to fall out of the sky, they actually would say. Air traffic navigation would go berserk. Elevators would stop. My goodness, when all they really had to worry about was the timer on their VCR. Of course, banks had to look after issues like interest calculations. That would be a, a thing, but that wasn't going to end the world. But to a machine, there are no starting points as such, unless specifically programmed to do so. And the starting point could be the number seven if you wanted to. But to the machine, every number simply follows a next. There are no starting points or ending points as such. A two follows a one, a three, a two, eight by nine. A nine is followed by a zero. A zero is followed by a one, and around and around they go. There's no particular significance to the number zero unless someone programmed it to be different. I.e., like, you know, when the clock reaches zero, crash the plane, stop the elevator. Can't say I ever really heard of... Uh, such a program, so what was all the panic about, you know what I'm saying? So, we're going to get to our last break now, and our last uh, clip in this break comes from a great show that was like so many shows that were really pretty good, cancelled. And that was Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles, don't know if you ever caught it. And they did something significantly different with their approach to artificial intelligence. One of the most fascinating android characters, if you will, was created in the character of John Henry, who was a human-like android, but who's forced to sit in a chair from which he really can't move too far because his head is wired into this computer that essentially occupies a huge portion of the building he's in. So he's got this huge cable sticking out the back of his head. He also has access to the Internet with tentacles of information stretching around the world. But more interestingly, John Hen Henry had a personal counselor who had been teaching him about life at what is really in some ways, you know, at a child's level of learning. John Henry was not really programmed in the conventional sense of the word. He actually had to exert some form of effort to understand. Again, another literary device. Now, on the other side of the bumper, we'll be hearing a technician explain why body and soul cannot be separated, rejecting the popular idea that they can, while on this side of the bumper, John Henry, the android, is sitting across from his counselor at a table painting a model figure, a soldier. He's learning how to play games and play with toys, sort of like being in art class. And they end up doing some soul searching. Let's listen in. The matte layer is critical. It both allows the colors to stick to the miniature and it provides the finished statue with the illusion of depth. But it's the detail work I find the most interesting. It challenges my fine motor control, and there are so many choices. The eyes, for example. The window to the soul. They're the window to the soul. I read that. That's what they say. Then I should choose my paint more carefully. It doesn't matter, John Henry. It's a statue. It's an object. It doesn't have a soul. It has eyes. Your eyes look tired. Is your soul tired? No, my soul isn't tired, but I am. And I am going home. Please don't. 
My monster is incomplete. The eyes. What color did you want to use? Blue. All right, pass me one of those. Let's get this done. Mr. Ellison? Yes. Does this make us friends? to disassemble everything and prepare it for transport? Uh, everything? You mean, like, everything? Is that something you're planning on doing? No, but John Henry's been attacked once. We should be prepared. John Henry was hacked. We fixed that. And besides, I, I think we're past the point where moving the hardware is a good idea. And in fact, I think it's potentially a really bad idea. Oh? How's that so? For example, the other day, one of the fan wires on a server was glitchy, uh, so we switched it out. Same wire, same length, identical, like uh, changing a spark plug. And? Sort of tweaked him. I'm not sure what you're getting at. What I'm getting at is I think what we know to be John Henry only exists as this specific collection of hardware and software. Body and soul. We change a wire, we change John Henry. Yes. You know, the implications of that are really incredible. Again, John Henry is a fictional character, a literary device to examine the human condition. And this was one of the few shows that at least took this view on the so-called mind-body split. And wouldn't you know, that was when they ended the series, just as they got up into that point of the, of the plot. But in, in our concluding comments today, I think, what is the real issue behind all of this? And I think that the controversies surrounding artificial intelligence are really about knowledge and what constitutes knowledge. Knowledge is identified as, quote, a mental grasp of the facts of reality reached either by perceptual observation or by a process of reason based on perceptual observation, which we reviewed before. And the way I look at it, you know, robots, androids, computers, whatever form they take. They don't have to be in human form. That's not the issue here. But I don't think that they can be, quote, knowledgeable. They can only be information storage, digitally processed, or even quantumly processed if you want. Because I think knowledge specifically relates to life's advancement. You know, specifically the life of the being that's possessing the knowledge. Something not alive has no need for knowledge, and therefore has no need for morality. It requires no value system. Uh, you know, there's no doubt, I, you know, however, that technological advancements will produce machines that appear to behave or respond intelligently, in that we as human beings can achieve some sort of goal in conjunction with that interaction. We already have such programs. You know, I recall playing an interactive video game on a computer that was probably still operating on an 8-bit operating system way back, well, maybe it was a Commodore 64, I don't know. One of the earliest home computers on the market anyway. 
and it was amazing. The voice on the game show host in this computer game reacted as if we were having a direct personal conversation. He even cracked a few well-placed jokes and insults that sounded like, you know, he knew the players pretty well. <laughs> but if any of us had switched the subject matter of the game or, or changed the goal of that computer program to something different, it, of course, would not have been able to respond to us. And the reason it seemed so uh, real was because we were all playing a similar game. I even saw the, the same phenomenon, uh, people playing a party game against a videotape. You'd think the guy in the videotape was programmed to respond to the people in the party. It was amazing. They do a lot of studies on these things, and they have a lot of tricks that they can do to fool you to think that you're, that you're actually interacting with something. So, you know, yes, we can, of course program a machine to add any number of possible objectives or goals or rules of computation to keep fooling us at ever-increasing levels of complexity. Um, but nothing else really changes in principle, does it? And here's something very important. Right? Efficiency is not a measure of intelligence. Let's give up on that one, okay? Uh, computers are tools. And tools are more efficient than direct human action in every instance. That's why we use them. They are labor-saving devices, which saves effort, so, something no machine would experience. You know, does a machine experience effort? Why would it? Why would, what, what, would, what would a hard job be versus an easy job? You know, even a shovel is a tool that's more efficient than digging a hole with your bare hands. But is it intelligent? I don't think so. Although I could say that I have a smart shovel. <laughs> it's a manual snow shovel with a bend in the handle. And it miraculously makes it much easier to move more snow with less effort than a regular snow shovel with a straight stick handle. Now that meant someone with intelligence went to the trouble to do the math on the better leverage required to get more out of that shovel. If I chose to stretch the definition of intelligence in the same way and manner in which I've been watching the scientific community doing it, then I could refer to my shovel as being intelligent too. Since it, quote, achieves the same goal as a regular shovel with less effort, which again is a, a human factor exclusively, it's at least a more intelligent shovel than the dumb shovel. <laughs> you can see how meaningless all, all this is. And, you know, the fact that a computer is infinitely more complex than a shovel, but no more complex than a light switch since it's you know really a series of millions and millions of digital switches turning on and off, that doesn't change a thing, though many argue that it does. And the reason they argue that is because they think that we work that way too. I think artificial intelligence is just a parrot of human intelligence and can only mimic and not be what we rightly call intelligence. Artificial intelligence would have to be utterly, utterly pragmatic in whatever its objective you know, has been programmed by another person to be. Uh, machines cannot think, only act in the sense of motion, not of self-initiated purpose. Now, here, I, you know, I was thinking about this, and I'm going, well, isn't that interesting? Artificial intelligence is, in a way, the reverse phenomenon of intelligence in human beings. It is the consequence, the consequence, rather, of motion, action, not the cause. In a way, I guess the best way to describe artificial intelligence, if it were to take 
the form of something like an android, would be maybe a perpetual motion machine set into motion, initiated by man. Certainly not self-initiated through effort, <laughs> with the goal of long-term survival as in some evolutionary process. And so I guess the big question, too, is, is life a necessary qualifier for intelligence? And I would argue, yes. If it isn't alive, it cannot be intelligent. And now let's keep in mind again, and there I go saying that phrase, let's keep in mind, intelligence is the ability to deal with a very broad range of abstractions. It has to be acquired by one's own effort, automated by your own mind. And it's the ability to grasp the facts of reality. It's not in a monopoly of genius. It is an attribute of all men, and the differences are only a matter of degree. And, you know, that would mean that some artificial intelligence could actually be pretty stupid and pretty inefficient, which would eliminate those two factors from being even considerations in the, term in the determination of intelligence. So you can see there sure is a lot to this issue, and I don't know if I've helped out at all with any of the questions today. Don't even know if this was an intelligent topic, but I hope you enjoyed it because that's all for today. We're going to head out of here now as we continue our journey in the right direction. And we hope again that you'll, you'll join us next week when we continue that journey. Until then, hey, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be intelligent. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Boy, the three of us are really going to have a ball. The three of us? No, no, just the two of us. Jeannie's not going. What did you, what did you say? <laughs> I said Jeannie's not going. You're kidding. General Peterson said when we finish our lecture, we could have a few days' leave, right? Yeah. And you're seriously thinking of going to Reno without Jeannie? Oh, no, no. I, I'm not thinking about it. I've already made up my mind. Jeannie can't go. You can't leave her here. Listen, ten minutes with her in the casino, and you'll come back a multimillionaire. Well, I don't want to be a multimillionaire. Well, how about a plain millionaire? <laughs> Roger, if I wanted to be a millionaire, I wouldn't have joined the Air Force. Well, couldn't you become a millionaire for me? I always wanted to have a millionaire friend. <laughs> you're just wasting your time. You and I are going to Reno. Jeannie is staying here. Will you tell me something? How did you ever pass the Air Force intelligence test? 